This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. The changing face of healthcare here in Ontario. Premier Doug Ford has unveiled his government's plan to increase surgeries at private clinics across the province. This move has received rather mixed reaction from every sector of the healthcare system. We'll be speaking shortly with Natalie Mara of the Ontario Health Coalition with why her advocacy group is dead set against it. But first, we're joined by the MPP for Brampton North, Graham McGregor, who has been tapped by the Premier and the Health Minister to spread the word about Ford's new plan. Welcome to the feed, Graham. Thank you so much, Anne, and uh, thank you for the listeners for hearing me out today. Well, I have to ask you this. How is this plan going to work, and how will public health care as we know it be protected? Well, and and I'll say, you know, when our government was putting this plan together, it really started from a premise that um, when it comes to your health, we need to be putting um, patients first and the patient outcome first and foremost. And, you know, we realized that with the surgical backlog that is currently plaguing our healthcare system, that the status quo um, is simply unacceptable. So that's why we've taken some bold action to eliminate the surgical backlogs, reduce wait times, uh, and get Ontario patients uh, the care that they deserve. So, Graham, will the funding be diverted from public hospital care to privatized clinics, or will this be fresh money? So this is fresh money we're announcing. I, I want to be clear on that. And I, you know, I, I know that there is some misinformation out there, particularly from some of our uh, opposition parties, about um, this being some kind of American-style privatization agenda. Um, uh, That's absolutely not the case. And anybody that would be uh, receiving this kind of health care, they're going to be using their health card and not their credit card. So there's no system where you're going to be able to skip the line or get better care or or anything like that. Um, What we're doing is we're expanding publicly funded, OHIP-funded surgeries um, and community clinics very similar to the model that we use for a family doctor, for instance. Um, We know that uh, this is going to divert people away, patients away from the hospitals, meaning that um, our already beleaguered healthcare staff at hospitals are going to be focused on uh, prioritizing um, some of the more, uh, I say, serious or or life-threatening procedures uh, and surgeries that they they need to intervene in, and some of the more... um, less urgent but still important ones like cataract surgeries, knee, hip replacement surgeries, uh, MRI, CT scans, um, those are going to happen in community clinics. There is a staffing shortage in hospitals right across the country and in particular in Ontario. Will this uh, be a difficult transition moving from uh, public hospitals to private clinics where it might be uh, intriguing uh, for physicians and nurses and other hospital staff to move to a private clinic? Is it going to make it difficult to to retain the proper staffing levels at hospitals? Well, the, the health human resource challenge um, is one that's really plagued Ontario uh, for quite a while. We're, we're taking steps to, to help that problem. We, we've got new medical schools that are cropping up in the GTA. Uh, we're expanding nursing programs. Uh, we're also recognizing more foreign credentials uh, nurses as well. Uh, 2022, uh, we had a record year in terms of foreign credentialed nurses getting recognized in Ontario, uh, over 6,000. 
for, uh, foreign trained nurses that were uh, recognized under the Ontario system that are able to practice in Ontario today. Um, but at the same time, we're also looking um, at bringing this new program around community clinics in a phased-in approach. So step one immediately is uh, 14,000 more cataract surgeries, 49,000 hours of MRI and CT scans happening in community clinics using um, existing clinics and existing resources. Um, for step two and three, as we expand the program, uh, we're going to be working with hospitals and with Ontario Health to ensure resources are allocated effectively. Uh, for instance, new facilities are going to be required to provide detailed staffing proposals as part of their applications, and a number of the physicians will be required to actively work at their local hospitals as well. So our goal is to create a, uh, a co uh, cohesive system, not to pit different providers against each other, um, and, and of course also uh, recognizing that um, all of the procedures that are happening at these clinics uh, will be OHIP funded, so publicly funded uh, procedures as well. Graham, how do you prevent upselling and out-of-pocket bills, additional bills beyond what OHIP will cover when it comes to these private clinics? Well, you know, the, the notion has been around um, since clinics were first created. Uh, we have safeguards in place that will make sure um, that any OHIP covered procedure, um, you know, if, if you're facing a scenario where, um, you know, the clinic is trying to tell you you have to pay for an upgrade, obviously that's not allowed and, and these clinics are already regulated. They'll continue to be regulated to make sure that that doesn't happen. Now, that being said, um, there are examples that exist in our healthcare system already where um, you can pay for upgrades. Uh, wheelchairs, for example, you know, OHIP will cover a wheelchair, but if you want a nicer wheelchair, I mean, there, there's nothing preventing a patient from, from paying for that. Um, you know, uh, off-brand prescriptions versus brand-name prescriptions. So, you know, some of these things exist in our healthcare system already. Um, but I, I, I want to be clear because, you know, some of the fear-mongering that we're hearing from the opposition parties is frankly kind of irresponsible where they're painting a picture that in order for you to be able to receive service at one of these clinics, you're going to have to be using your credit card and pay for it. That is not the case. And the worst, uh, the worst outcome that I could imagine coming from this are that any of your listeners are dissuaded from going to one of these community clinics because they're worried that they're going to have to pay for their service. They're not going to have to pay for the service. It'll be funded through OHIP, uh, through our one-payer system, the publicly funded. Um, and, I, and I really encourage um, anybody in Ontario to, to use all of the healthcare options that are, that are available um, because we really are looking to, to clear that backlog and, like I said, provide a, a better patient outcome overall. You know, Graham, you've mentioned a couple of times the opposition parties, and it's their job to oppose everything that the governing party uh, puts forward. I mean, that's that's history tells us that, and it's in the future as well. But I've got word that five major Ontario healthcare unions are calling on the Ford government to halt this plan because they say this will cost Ontarians dearly and damage access to public health care. How do you respond to that? Well, look, we're always going to stand up uh, on the side of healthcare workers, but at the government, we got to look at what's the what's the best outcome for the patients as well. And you know, when we talk about the fourteen thousand cataract surgeries that are going to be happening in community clinics, publicly funded um, and paid for by OHIP, not by by individuals, um, you know, that represents twenty five percent of the existing waitlist on a cataract surgery now. You know, a, a cataract surgery or a knee or a hip replacement might not be as urgent as 
you know, uh, heart surgery or, or some of the other issues that, that uh, people go to the hospital for. Um, but when you're waiting on a wait list for a year, um, that's a severe impact on the quality of life um, for the patient. So, you know, what we're, what we're looking to do is, is um, do what makes sense, moving some of the more minor procedures um, into the community clinic. And, you know, I, I, I don't think anybody would be um, uh, opposing the practice of a family doctor's office. You know, when they talk about we don't want any, um, any of these community clinics propping up, I mean, this is a system that already exists for the family doctor. Imagine if Anytime you went for a checkup with your family doctor, you had to go wait in a hospital. And we know that the hospital's um, uh, wait times are, are a severe challenge. Imagine if you had to, to go to a hospital anytime you needed to talk to a doctor. I don't think anybody would suggest that's a good way to approach healthcare. What we're doing is um, getting more care out in the, into community clinics, uh, which is going to make the lives of our beleaguered staff in hospitals a little bit better because... Uh, they'll have less patients uh, uh, waiting in the backlog. So um, I really would encourage anybody opposing the plan to, to read the details of what we're putting forward. Um, I think it's very reasonable uh, what we're doing. I think it's common sense. It's already being implemented in provinces like British Columbia and Quebec. Um, and I, I really hope that everybody can get on board and, and Focus on what matters here, which is the best outcome for Ontario patients. MPP for Brampton North, Graham McGregor. Thank you for joining us on the feed. Oh, thanks, Ed. Natalie Mara is the executive director of the Ontario Health Coalition, an advocacy group that believes in protecting public health care for all. Natalie, welcome to the feed. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. So, Natalie, you were quoted as saying in the OHC's press release issued on January 16th, right after the Premier unveiled his new health care plan, quote, what Ford announced today is a fatal threat to our public health care system. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, we have called all the private clinics in Ontario, the existing ones, and there aren't many, but they have sort of eaten away a little bit at privatizing our public hospital services. And we've called them all, and we've posed as patients, and we've said, you know, I can I buy my way to the front of the queue? How how much will it cost? You know, those sorts of things. And we've caught the majority of them, not a small number, but the majority of them extra billing, thousands of dollars for um, needed surgeries and diagnostic tests. So the fact is that the private clinics violate the Canada Health Act, the core tenet that patients are not supposed to be charged. We already pay in our taxes. We're not supposed to be charged for needed health care services. Um, and they do it anyway. And it's the prices are exorbitant, like 10 times the cost for a shoulder surgery in a private clinic than it is in the public system. Five times the cost for cataract surgeries and so on. Now, Natalie, will that change when step one is implemented? There are three steps to this plan. Will that change? Will there be greater oversight when it comes to the private clinics? Well, I mean, already the Ford government has been in power for four and a half years and they've done nothing to stop the private clinics from extra billing patients. The ones in Ontario, you know, where do we find patients being charged literally $2,000 per eye for cataract surgeries? It's in the private clinics in Ontario. That's where we see it. And it's, it's a violation of 
you know, the whole idea of public health care that we won as Canadians, that we would get care based on need and not ability, not how rich we are, not the ability to pay. Um, and these are elderly people, most of them on fixed incomes, who are being charged hundreds of extra dollars routinely for medically unnecessary stuff, like eye measurement tests, which, you know, the needed eye measurement tests are already covered by OHIP. But, of course, if you have a 1,000 patients, and you charge each one of them two hundred extra dollars for an eye measurement test. You make two hundred thousand extra dollars a year. If you charge two thousand dollars for the cataract surgery, you make two million extra dollars a year. And that's what this is about. And that's why we cannot turn over our public hospital services to private for-profit interests. Since the announcement, and actually during the announcement, the premier and his health minister have promised that. People will be paying with their OHIP cards and not their credit cards. That's kind of it, not in quotations, but pretty close to what they've been saying. They are promising that these are all every part of, of any surgery that will be taking place in a private clinic from this day forward will be covered by OHIP. Can we believe that? Well, that's what I'm saying. They're they're not telling the truth because right now patients are being extra billed. The government knows this, and they have not stopped them. And in fact, now they're expanding. In the press conference earlier this week, um, the health minister was, uh, the premier and the health minister were asked multiple times, will you let the clinics upsell, you know, medically unnecessary add-ons? They would not, absolutely would not say that they, that they would stop them from doing that. So that's bad enough. But the fact is that the clinics are right now, illegally, extra billing patients forcing them to have to pay in order to get their cataract surgeries in the private clinics. Um, and so how could we believe that you're never going to have to do that? People are already having to do that. This plan announced three steps uh, earlier this week is, according to the Ford government, uh, an effort to decrease surgery wait times. Let me ask you this. What do you think and your organization that the Ford government should be doing to decrease surgery wait times to shore up staffing shortages and also try to bring down the volumes in ERs? Well, this is the thing. You know, in every hospital in Ontario, um, uh, certainly all the large hospitals, there are operating rooms that are closed for days or weeks or months at a time, even permanently because of underfunding for years. So we underuse our public operating rooms as it is, and now understaffing, right, in the, in the public hospitals. So why would we then take public money, pay to rebuild that system in private clinics that would be run for their own profit, not in the public interest, um, and shift over surgeries? They would only take the profitable surgeries, the ones that they want, the light, easy care patients that are f high volume, you know, fast, profitable, and staff out of the public hospitals, leaving less funding, less staff, and all the heavier care patients behind. Why would we do that? We have existing, all kinds of existing 
capacity in public hospitals that isn't being used. This isn't about reducing wait times. We could do that in the public hospitals. It's about privatizing a public service. I'm looking at the press release that was issued on Monday during the announcement, and, and this is what really stood out for me. The number of high-profile health care uh, individuals who are standing by this plan, for instance, Anthony Dale, President and CEO of Ontario Hospital Association, Dr. Rose Zacharias, President of the OMA, Dr. Andy Smith, President and CEO, Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre, Dr. Kevin Smith, President and CEO, University Health Network, Dr. David Jacobs, President of Ontario Association of Radiologists all saying, we stand by this, we think that this is a good idea. Yeah, shame on them. Shame on them. They know that this, you know, uh, will take staff out of the public hospitals. There's no other staff. I mean, a nurse either works in a private clinic or a public hospital. We have a severe shortage. We have a shortage of MRI techs, of CT techs. But, you know, the government has lined up people that rely on government funding <laughs> to say what they're doing is good. You know, not a big surprise. There are a huge load of physicians, leaders, clinical leaders, all kinds of voices out there saying that this is a terrible idea um, that do not rely on government funding. <laughs> there are at least five uh, hospital and healthcare unions that are saying that as well, that are saying this is not a good plan, it is a dramatically drastic plan that is going to push us toward privatization. It is the private, it's the dismantling of our public hospitals. I mean, Ontarians need to understand this is, you know, we're not exaggerating. If you hand over, you know, four, the Premier Ford talked about 50% of hospital surgeries. Can you imagine? Hand that over to private for profit hospital corporations and private for profit clinics. You're getting the public hospitals, right? You're taking the profitable work out of them, leaving only the unprofitable work which, you know, subsidizes the other patients, you're getting them of staff. It's the dismantling of our public hospital system that has existed, you know, for generations is, is, is world class, you know, the envy of other countries. It's just a terrible thing to do. And it is devastating if they get away with it. I mean, we're going to fight this. We are going to fight this and we will stop it. We've stopped it before, but boy, it's going to be a fight. Ontarians, we're hoping will join us. And how can those who feel that way be a part of what it is that you're trying to do at the Ontario Health Coalition, your movement, your protest? Mm -hmm. Thanks. Yeah, well, they can come to our website, which is ontariohealthcoalition.ca, and, um, and join um, and sign up to get updates and so on. We're going to hold town hall meetings across the, at the province protests, and ultimately we'll move towards a mass citizen called referendum to stop them. Interesting. The government says that places like Quebec, British Columbia have this kind of plan already rolled out and that it's working. This is what they're claiming. What is your response to that? Yeah, it isn't working. I mean, in Quebec, the seniors organizations, uh, you know, ha threatened a, to a court action to force the government to try and stop the clinics from extra billing patients because patients have been facing so many user charges. They got it temporarily stopped. And then, of course, the clinics snuck the fees back in. In BC, the private clinics have taken the entire public Medicare system to court. They're trying to bring down 
single-tier Medicare in Canada so that they can extra bill patients. If that is working, I mean, I don't know what would be a disaster. It's been terrible. All of the places where they've allowed private clinics to move in in Canada, we see extra billing of really unbelievable charges, you know, for surgeries and diagnostic tests. And people pay their taxes, too, for the public health system. I mean, it's not a... Uh, it's not like it reduces costs, it increased costs for people. How would you and the Ontario Health Coalition like to see our healthcare system restructured then? If not this way, how should it be restructured? Well, I mean, Ontario has cut our hospitals beyond any reason or evidence. We have the fewest hospital beds left of any province in Canada. The only countries in the entire OECD that have fewer hospital beds left than Ontario are Mexico and Chile. We have we fund our hospitals at the lowest rate in the country. We've starved the public hospitals in order to privatize and dismantle them. We need to rebuild the really excellent quality public hospital system. We need proper home care and long-term care as well. You know, we need to rebuild the continuum of care in Ontario so that people can access care. But where we have sound public interest governance of it, right, where it's operated in the public interest, there is the possibility of improving things in the public interest. If you get that and hand it over to private for-profit interests, We'll see in the hospitals what we've seen in long-term care, which has been a total disaster in which patient care has been subsumed to the profit motive to the point that people have died in the thousands preventably in horrible conditions that just are unacceptable. We'll see what has happened in the United States with healthcare. I mean, it's all around us. It's just the total wrong direction. And it's not about the public interest. This is about private interests that want to make profit out of our public health care. Natalie Mara, Executive Director of the Ontario Health Coalition, thank you for your time on the feed today. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up after the break, back to business. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of The Feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Our next couple of stories are for job seekers and hiring managers. We begin with the business plan. Tina Cortez with that story. Australia, Ireland, the UK, and right here in Canada. These are the four countries where Peninsula Group conducted a survey of 79,000 businesses. With the 2023 priorities for employers in these countries, we're joined by HR Advisory Manager Kilian Shukalari. Thank you for your time, Kilian. There is much talk these days about a recession and a challenging first quarter. Is it safe to assume that employers are worried about growth first and foremost? Absolutely. Uh, this has been one of the main uh, topics that we found out, or the, the, one of the main concerns. Uh, with employers across across the globe, as we like to say, we we did the survey uh, with pretty much every uh, client 
that we have across the globe, and that's the main concern uh, right now, um, along with rising costs, labor shortages, um, and also retention. And did they talk about how they plan to address these big issues? Absolutely. I mean, the three top, obviously interchangeably between um, country to country, but the three top um, approaches were to improve uh, the way they pay the individual employees. So pay raises were uh, one of the, the things that was done. Uh, because it, everything has to do with with the workforce, it sounds like, uh, for at least for a little while, um, provide cross uh, training, so internally uh, promoting individuals, um, and also uh, looking at potentially other resources or other other pools um, or, or other demographics that they can support uh, uh, this shortage. And what about in terms of how people, how employees work? You know, we we do know that the pandemic changed the way we work and where we work. How are employers working with that aspect of their business? Absolutely. One of the major things that happened, uh, as everyone would know, is a change in location or place of work, as we like to call it. So a lot of individuals were moved to remote. Some were forced, some because of the way um, that, uh, that the business decided to, to move forward. Um, and that has, uh, is something that is going to uh, continue uh, for the foreseeable future. A lot of the businesses, I have to mention, have made um, um, a rollback um, to the original way of work, but flex work and flexible uh, hours is something that's here to stay. That's also one of the ways that the employers uh, have uh, tried to to um, to deal with the challenges. Um, it is it's something that uh, will mean different things to different um, businesses depending on the industry. Um, in some industries, it's something that cannot um, cannot continue long term. In other industries, it's something that would need to be staggered, where individuals come to the office maybe um, a few days a week and then work remotely. But those are it, it's a challenge that's going to continue. Technology has advanced. So that, that is enabling employers to be able to do this more efficiently, uh, but also presents some challenges, um, especially for um, younger managers in terms of managing their employees' productivity, um, even um, motivation uh, at times, and also uh, making sure that everyone is pulling their weight. And how are they managing skills and staffing shortages? Well, one of the one of the um, options is to uh, try to recruit externally. That always comes uh, as a you know as a, as a first thing to mind. However, um, meantime, employers are investing a lot uh, internally to upskill uh, their existing uh, workforce. A lot of businesses will have to make changes. Either they have to focus on the existing uh, customer force that they have, uh, or they might have to change. Um, um, or going to a different direction with regards to providing a new service or product that will require their employees to adapt and uh, be able to uh, perform other duties and tasks. So that will require them to be retrained. And that's what a lot of employers are doing right now. It's also a good um, uh, replacement or an offset uh, or a mitigating factor for not providing um, a higher increase in pay where you provide individuals with 
with, uh, with more training so their skills improve, so they see a bit of a benefit to continue to stay. It's a retention tactic as well. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you about. Are there other incentives beyond the financial ones to keep employees engaged and keep them a part of the company? Absolutely. Uh, a lot of the um, techniques that the employers are using, will use, and things that have been used in the past would basically be, as I, as I mentioned earlier, the, the training, that internal training, cross-training, um, moving individuals within the company so they're able to be um, to be able to be exposed to other positions as well. It helps the employers as well in times when they are short-staffed or there's individuals that depart the business. So they want to make sure that they have someone that's ready to uh, take their spot, but also upskills um, individuals in, in the in their position. The other aspect or the other option would be to provide flexible work environment, not just in terms of remote work, but also start and end time. Um, for the employee, a lot of these things are, are simple and easy uh, sometimes to come up as ideas on what to do, but practically putting them in place will require a bit of an adjustment uh, from employers and employees alike. Uh, individuals might have some restrictions as to how often um, they could be off or when they could be uh, able to have flexible hours. So it's, it's going to be a coordination approach from both sides. I think anyone reading this survey would be shocked that the number one priority is just to survive. Do you think there's room then for optimism and opportunity? Well, it's interesting. It's interesting that uh, that that was one of the the main things that came up. Um, there's a lot of um, ambiguity right now and unknowns as to where we're headed uh, in all the markets. The other thing, though, that you have to also pick up from the survey is the fact that almost half of those um, employees, employers are looking to also grow uh, the business. So everyone is positive, like, by nature, uh, when it comes to entrepreneurs and, and business owners, uh, and that trickles down to also the, the HR managers that are going, to, are going to be guiding these companies to success. So in terms of a, a positive, there's always a positive. Every time that there is... Um, every time there's a concern, there's a challenge. Uh, by nature, individuals and, and, and people, they adapt. So that's what's going to happen here as well. We went through a pandemic, ups and downs, with support, without support, we were able to make it. In this case, looking at internally at your business, how it's set up, what kind of uh, maybe efficiencies you can put in place, maybe come up um, with, a, with a new system. Uh, if there is downtime, provide training for for individuals internally. You don't have to retrain someone external. That's a lot more uh, expensive. Um, there's going to be times when also tough decisions will have to be made. Changes that happen in legislation, it's also a, a good time. It's a wake-up call for a lot of employers to maybe take a, a deeper look at how up-to-date your documentation is. That's another risk that's lurking also. Um, so you want to make sure that you're, you're doing your due diligence even during these down times um, to make sure that when opportunity comes, you're ready to, uh, to take advantage of it. Killian, you're an HR manager. What is your message to employers and employees alike? These are, these are tough times, um, times when we need to really look inside of us and figure out what are our strengths. What are our strengths? What can we provide 
um, as as individuals to the business. Most of the HR managers will have uh, a seat to the table, as we as we call it. Some of them might not. So it's a time where we need to be a bit strategic. Um, look at where the business is struggling. Look at where the possibilities would be to maybe, like I said earlier, look at a different pool of candidates. For example, if the business is looking to change a product line, providing a service, as, a, as an HR manager, you want to be adapting and trying to provide as much support as possible in recruiting the right type of individual. Also, identifying the right uh, opportunities where we can upskill individuals. Maybe we do already have individuals of a certain level of skill that could be moved or repositioned in other roles within the company without disrupting operations. That's something that you need to be aware of. So really look inside of your team and make sure that you, you have the right skill set. If not, develop it. And the last resort is going to be to look at maybe externally. Sometimes we even have to go outside of the country. And outside of the box, it sounds like as well. If our listeners want more information, where could they find it? Absolutely. Peninsula.ca would be the website where you can uh, find out a lot more about this particular survey and also other resources that can help you navigate this challenging times. Kilian Shukalari from Peninsula Group, thank you for your time. Absolutely. My pleasure. If you are looking for employment, Glenn Perkins makes the connection. A new study by Robert Half Recruitment reveals that 50% of respondents are considering leaving their current job and taking on new challenges. JVS Toronto is a non-for-profit organization that helps job seekers. CEO Alison Steinberg joins us. Alison, welcome to the program. Thank you. Tell me a little about the history of JVS Toronto. So JVS Toronto is an organization that's been around for 75 years and we are really a one-stop shop for job seekers in Toronto and York region, really of all backgrounds to help them gain sustainable work. Um, And we offer uh, programs and services to students, visible minorities, youth at risk, newcomers to Canada, uh, people with disabilities across all faiths. Uh, races and nationalities. Now, I understand that the organization was created to provide vocational services to Holocaust survivors and veterans of the Second World War in search of new lives. That mandate continues today. You've been helping refugees escaping the war in Ukraine. Tell me, how did that program work? Really, right uh, very early on, um, as we started to uh, see refugees arriving from the Ukraine, JVS Toronto, you know, adapted um, as quickly as possible to provide specialized employment programs to support those individuals. So we started working with partners in the communities, uh, providing um, job fairs, uh, individual job search supports, um, and doing whatever we could to help some of those people settle and find work in Canada. And Alison, if someone is unemployed or looking to change careers, how does the process work? Is there a requirement if they want to use the services offered by JVS Toronto? So our services are free. Uh, we offer services out of uh, nine different locations across the greater Toronto area. We have two locations in York Region, one in Markham and one in Vaughan. And people can access our services by going to our website, jvstoronto.org. 
They can also come in and visit us. Uh, we'll help register them, and they'll have access to a whole variety of different services, including one-on-one uh, -on -one support, workshops, career exploration services, um, and they'll really be able to um, connect to employers. We have direct connections with over 6,000 local employers across the GTA, and um, we really will do our best to provide customized support to meet the individualized needs of the job seekers that we work with. The past couple of years have been difficult for both business owners and employees. What are the challenges facing job seekers today? I think the challenges facing job seekers today really, um, you know, it's difficult to, you know, to meet the needs of the job seeker and align that with what the jobs are. There's a whole new changing face of the workforce with hybrid work models um, and different expectations of employers and the job seekers. So we really, at JBS, we work together with both the employers and the job seekers to try to make a match between um, what the job seekers are looking for and aligning those needs with the needs of the employers and making sure that there's a true understanding of what those jobs are, what the job requirements are, and how we can ensure that people move into employment and are successful and, and can sustain that employment for the long term. During that job search process, it can become very disheartening what are the key messages that you would tell people? I think the key messages really are, are don't give up. There are jobs out there for everyone, and it's our job at JVS to really work with clients to understand their needs, to help sh make sure that they have the skills that they need through some of the skills upgrading programs that we offer, to make sure that they're going about the job search process with support and through our programs and services, both group workshops and one-on-one, -on -one, they get that support to ensure that they stay motivated um, and they can continue to work towards their goals. Alison Steinberg, CEO JVS Toronto, thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much. I'm Glenn Perkins for 105.9 The Region. Coming up on the feed, the answer in the form of a question. Follow us on Twitter at 105.9 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Canadians are dominating the Jeopardy stage these days. Kevin Frankish with the answers and the questions. He apparently is among only 16 people in the history of the show Jeopardy with a winning streak of at least 10 games, and he went 13. He's from the beaches. Ray Lalonde joins me right now. Hi, Ray. How are you? I'm really good. Thank you very much. Well, it is quite the feat to win at Jeopardy, but it's quite the feat just to, to go on or to have the guts to want to go on that show. That's a scary, intimidating show. It really is, you know, and uh, it was, I actually second-guessed myself a little bit when I first applied. Uh, I tried a few times over the years, and then and, yeah, I'd never gotten through, and then I thought, it's during the pandemic, there's an online test you can do from home anytime, and I thought, why not give it one more try? And it really worked out well. <laughs> Boy, I tell you, anytime I watch the show, I mean, you think, oh, I must have been away from school that day <laughs> from some of the answers <laughs> in that. Did you at any point surprise yourself? I'm interested in, do you ever surprise yourself in, in, in your knowledge? Uh, all the time. All the time. I mean, the, the whole idea that I was on there and doing well was a surprise to me. I thought, I'd, you know, I'd do okay. I'd, I'd get on TV. It'd be kind of fun. I do it once and I go home sort of thing. And yeah, just that I was, you know, in the competition 
and you know buzzing in and getting these things on time, and all of a sudden there I am in the lead. Uh, that was all a shock. And then when I won the first game, it was, you know the only thought that went through my head was, well, this is great. I get to do this one more time. You know, this is wonderful. And I won a game, and I can always say I won a game. So I've got that to take home with me. And uh, I never thought more than one game ahead that, okay, I get to play another game. That's all it was. And you would shoot more than one show a day. Yes, yes. So the first day you get there and you, you go and do hair and makeup and they warm you up and they give you all the instructions and you practice a bit actually on the stage. And then they start shooting the shows and they shoot five of them. And so for the first morning, I was watching the, the fellow before me that was playing really well, Sean. He, was, uh, he won the first three games of that day. And then uh, after lunch, they were shooting the, the final two games, and that's when they called my name up. It's just a random call. And uh, I got to go up and play. And, but, you know, there I am playing against somebody who's already done really, really well. And so, and then, you know, lights in your face, audience, noise, Ken Jennings, scared to death. And, uh, you just, and it, the game starts, and you just sort of lose yourself in the, the pace of just answering these fireball questions one after the other. What was it like for Ray Lalonde day one, standing there? Uh, day one, <laughs> scary as heck. Uh, you sort of get up in the morning. It's, uh, you get there about 7.30 in the morning, and they sort of walk you through everything, and you go to the green room, which is actually the Wheel of Fortune stage. Oh, um, is it really? Yeah. So you're sitting there in the audience uh, of that studio looking at the wheel, and it's the building next door to Jeopardy. And so, uh, and then they talk you through all the rules and what you have to do, and there's some paperwork, of course. And then you go over to the actual stage before the audience gets there, and you practice. And they let everybody up on the stage one of the, you know, three at a time. And you play the game fake and get used to buzzing in and answering questions and you know, being at the podium. And then we walk everybody back to the, uh, back to the green room and then they sort of random start picking people to play. Uh, so they'll pick two names plus the champion and then they'll go to hair and makeup and wardrobe and then onto stage they go. And everybody else stays backstage and watches it on the monitors. Uh, so we never get to actually go on stage again until we get called to play. And then, so yeah, it's a long, long day. Um, by the time I got on, of course, I was intimidated, um, kind of tired at that point, and it's a long day. And then, uh, yeah, you get up on the stage and you just start playing. All right, let's compare that now to show number 13. Yes. How, how were you then? <laughs> uh, show number 13, actually, I'm much more relaxed because uh, what happened was I won the first 12 games, and that was all they shot that week. Um, so at the end of that shooting day, it was okay. Back to Toronto with you. Um, you're going to come back down in four weeks, I guess it was, and and you're going to keep on shooting games because you know, you're still the champion. And so I went back home, relaxed a bit, saw my friends. Couldn't tell anybody except for you know a couple of people. I had to keep it very quiet that I'd been on the show and that I won a lot. And then uh, flew back down to Los Angeles and uh, you know came in that morning and won my thirteenth game. And then, of course, I lost the 14th. Do you ever kick yourself uh, while you're up there missing an answer or giving a wrong answer? Uh, or did you just sort of take it in stride? Well, you kind of have to shake it right off because there's no time. And they warn you about that. If you're going to stand up there and kick yourself, the game is going to move on very fast without you. So you can't do that. Uh, there are things I saw afterwards and I went, how the heck did I see that? What was I thinking? Uh, there was one, I guess, famous to my family, 
uh, one where I didn't answer a Gilbert and Sullivan question that I knew, you know, <laughs> like the back of my hand, but I couldn't get the words out of my mouth in the five seconds I've got. And I, I can't believe I didn't, but there you go. It happens to everybody, I guess. All right. So what has happened now with your celebrity? Uh, people walking up to you, marriage proposals, anything like that? Uh, nothing like that, but I, I got some very complimentary stuff online and uh, a bunch of IMs from uh, people I knew, people I used to know, and then people just all across the country. I mean, I'm surprised I got things from Alberta and BC and you know, Manitoba just uh, saw you on TV and I thought you did really well and you made us really proud to be a Canadian sort of thing. And, and it was very, very nice. And of course, yeah, people on the street, people on the subway, I'll be at a restaurant, people just walk up and say, I don't want to interrupt you, but I just wanted to say congratulations. It's all very nice. So you're back for the Tournament of Champions, which is uh, in the fall. Is there mm-hmm. anything you can do to prep for that? Oh, well, I'm doing a little bit of uh, work with that because I know, you know, I know what I'm weak at. I, you know, I wanted to bone up a bit more on the American things, the uh, American history, American government, uh, American geography, because you know, the, the questions are heavily weighted that way. And then um, I'll try and learn a little bit about sports. Uh, I play sports, but I don't actually watch them. So I don't know a lot about uh, players and teams and you know, that sort of thing. And uh, you know, so it's good not to have too many weak points when you go up there. Well, thanks for speaking with me, and I wish you all the luck in the Tournament of Champions. Well, thank you very, very much. It's been a pleasure. All right, Ray Lalonde, uh, Jeopardy champion, talking to me from uh, Toronto from his home in the beaches. You're listening to The Feed. The next game is at Center Ice. Jim Lang now with the tournament and the scouts. Coming up at the end of the month, from Friday, January 27th to Sunday, January 29th, some elite prep hockey teams from across Canada and the United States will converge on St. Andrews College in Aurora for the McPherson Tournament. It's going to be another example of elite hockey in New York region. The talk more about it. Thrilled to be joined by the longtime head coach of SAC Hockey, David Manning. David, how are you? I'm doing well. How about yourself today? Good, good. I mean, for your players, for your your program, your organization, to have these teams from across Ontario and places like Lake Placid and other locations, it must be a great way to test the skill and metal of your team getting into the teeth of the season. Yeah, this is uh, always a highlight uh, of our season. Um, this is the uh, 39th year of the McPherson tournament, and, and uh, our aim is to bring in uh, the best seven teams as possible to join us based on their schedules and availability. So I think... Uh, it's very exciting for the school community, very exciting for our players to test ourselves against the seven other great programs. And, and that's the thing. I, I like testing each other because I think a lot of your players will probably have a lot of confidence, a lot of skill, but sometimes they'll play teams they've never seen before. And it's it's a bit of an eye-opener, I bet. Yeah, for sure. We've seen some of these teams, but uh, you're right. I think anytime you get together over three days, uh, there's momentum, there's bounces, there's all kinds of different things that uh, come into play that... Uh, make an interesting weekend uh, even more interesting. The, the one thing that stands out about sack hockey, and I'm biased because my buddy's son played for you and played for St. Andrews College Hockey, is it's about building better hockey players. It's also about building better young men in society. And in these kind of tournaments, playing this kind of competition, you don't always win. And sometimes if you get knocked in your butt, it's a good life lesson. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, for us, uh, we're going to have ups and downs through any season, and uh, we've had our share of them this year already, and 
we'll continue to have some. And, and I think that uh, being a school, having a staff full of teachers, um, we tend to take a bit more of a holistic view to, to what hockey is providing us. And it doesn't mean we don't take it any any uh, less serious than, uh, than anyone else. But I think for us, it definitely we're trying to build in those lessons and, and learn through using hockey as kind of that vessel for us to, to mature and, and, and be the men that we want them to see. David, a lot of your ex-players are in the NHL. Way more are in the NCAA. What is it about St. Andrews College Hockey that has produced these kind of athletes, these kind of young men that end up in the NCAA or pro hockey? Well, I first, first off, I think we've got you know great student-athletes here, and, and I think the credit should go to them um, for you know, uh, putting in the time, the effort, the dedication, uh, the work to, to, to get where they are. Um, I think our job as a school is to try and build as, you know, an amazing environment as we possibly can, whether it be in the classroom or in our residential uh, uh, boarding houses or on the ice. And, and I think we do a good job building that environment. And then the boys, you know, take that last major ingredient of, you know, their dedication and their hard work and their attention to detail. Um, then good things will happen. And, and so we've been really fortunate to have um, a number of boys, as you mentioned, who've you know, got to the peak in terms of being you know, in the NHL or representing Canada. And, and a number of boys, uh, you know, just off of this year's roster alone, you're looking at nine boys currently that have NCAA scholarships lined up. And, and uh, you know, we're really proud of those guys, and that's a credit to them and their families and the work that they've put in. Speaking with David Manning, the head coach of SAC Hockey and Aurora as they get ready for the McPherson Tournament taking place Friday, January 27th to Sunday, January 29th. So how did you, a young man from beautiful St. John's, Newfoundland, end up playing D3 hockey at Colby College? Yeah, I went to a school, yeah, I went to a school very similar to, to St. Andrews in, in New Hampshire. Um, you know, I grew up uh, like any Canadian kid, uh, uh, you know, loving hockey, and, and I was afforded the opportunity to, to attend a school similar to this, and um, you know, I was uh, a soccer player as well, so I ended up playing both sports at, at Colby College, soccer and hockey, and, and uh, had an amazing experience uh, at a small school that really changed uh, the trajectory of my life. And, and uh, you know, the, the connection to St. Andrews comes from Colby. And, and so, you know, I think uh, that experience helps me kind of understand what our boys are going through and understand the advantages and the the opportunities that could be afforded to these guys. So, so I think that, um, you know, it comes from a, a really uh, natural place for me to be part of this program. And that's what I was going to ask you, David, for a lot of these kids, as you say, they come from uh, out of province, out of country, uh, elsewhere, and sometimes homesick and being away from family and friends can be rough. And I, I would imagine you can relate being a long way from Newfoundland playing hockey in New yeah. Hampshire. Yeah, I think that... Uh, We've got so many amazing people here at the school um, who help support these boys, whether it be their teachers or their academic advisors or their heads of houses. Um, you know, the, the environment we have here is really aimed at kind of putting our boys at the center of, of things and, and surrounding them with, with this environment, as I mentioned, and, and amazing people who help support them. So, you know, it, obviously any boy is going to go through it. I went through it myself, and anyone who, who leaves home, <clears throat> you know, We'll, we'll have those moments where they, you know, they itch to return or they feel like things aren't going their way. But, um, you know, I think because our amazing staff and, and the people we have here uh, at all levels, you know, simple, just our dining room staff and, and our, our, you know, maintenance staff, all these people do such an amazing job of just building and creating this, this place here that these boys can thrive in. And, and, and we're really a credit to, 
to all the moving parts and the boys benefit from that. But again, there's there's ups and downs, and and our job is to help support them and move through them and make them that much more ready for the for the challenges they're going to tackle in the future. And David, I I think at this age, the age of the boys you're coaching. Of course, they're so competitive. They want to win every game, but that's not the way life works. And sometimes you're winning other ways than just winning a hockey game. For sure, yeah. We we just went through that the other day. Uh, yesterday, we lost in a championship final in another tournament we were involved in and, and uh, in a shootout. And uh, probably no worse way to lose, to be honest with you. I would have rather lose in regular time by a few goals. But I think that it, I told the boys that, you know, you need to play well to feel crappy like this and 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 sometimes there's only going to be one winner and and you know we could hang our hat on and be proud of the fact that we played really well and we played nearly a perfect game and sometimes it just doesn't work out that way and and i think that um and that mirrors life you know you can do all the right things sometimes and you know uh, luck just doesn't bounce your way or the timing isn't right and 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 you know slips through your fingers so i think any of those lessons we can pass on to the boys they can experience it's going to make them better fathers their employees, better, better coaches if they choose to do that in the future, and, and hopefully we can emulate that for them and, and really lead them to understanding that there's lessons to be learned in, in the good and the bad. Well, David, it's easy to see why you've been the head coach at Sac since the 2010-2011 season. You're doing great work there on and off the ice. Good luck with the McPherson tournament, the 27th to 29th of January, and I hope it's a big success, and I really appreciate you joining me today. No, I really appreciate that, and, and for everyone in the local community, get out and support these teams and, and uh you know, if you want to see an exciting, uh, emotional, and, and, and competitive brand of hockey, uh, you know, the, the rinks around Aurora will be uh, teaming with that type of activity January 27th to the 29th. So appreciate the, the time. If you missed any part of the feed, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.